1: Hey, this is Emily Stewart, and I write for Vox about things like the intersection of business, politics, and the economy. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. It's always hard to tackle questions about what's actually going on in the economy, in large part because the answer really depends on who we're talking about. The pandemic made this hyper-clear. For a lot of white-collar workers, the transition to working from home was relatively seamless. Well-off people have saved money by not going on vacation or going out to eat, and many of them have even made money on the stock market. For other people, though, it's like they were living in a completely different world. Blue-collar workers were laid off or deemed essential and had to keep going into work despite the danger. Many people's lives were tossed into chaos and uncertainty. Janelle Jones is one of the people tasked with sorting all of this out. She's the chief economist at the Department of Labor and a really smart and really unique voice in economics. She's the first black woman in her post at the DOL, and she's just in her 30s. She coined the phrase black women best. It's an idea that centering black women in economic policy is a way to benefit everybody. I wanted to talk to Janelle because I think that as the economy recovers, there's going to be a real impetus to declare that everything's okay now and it's time to move on. But a lot of people are going to be left behind. So I want to ask Janelle, what are we in for and is there a way to get off of the path that we're on right now? Hi, Janelle. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. So I think just to start out, you've been on the job at the Department of Labor for a few months now. What's surprised you? Like, what's it like in there?
2: Yeah, to say it's been an exciting, interesting, fast-paced few months would be an understatement. Um, You know, I think one of the things that really has surprised me the most is just how vast and varied the work of the Department of Labor really is. Um, You know, I've been working in D.C. I'm an economist. I've dealt with BLS. I've dealt with DOL uh, for years. And I think if you had asked me 200 days ago before I started in this job, do you know what the Department of Labor does, I would have confidently answered, yes, of course, I'm well informed. But it's not true. Every day, you know, I'm learning about the thousands of people who are coming into work to think about the programs and policies and regulations and enforcement and an outreach that really works to protect workers. And I'm honestly, you know, just in awe of how much work folks are doing across so many different agencies and really still just to this day learning a million new things a day and obviously also learning 13 or so new acronyms a day.
1: Yeah. And along those lines, for people who maybe aren't super familiar, the BLS is the Bureau of Labor Statistics.
2: I'm already doing it. I'm already one of them.
1: <laughs> it honestly is like
2: the minute you learn the acronym, then you become part of the problem. <laughs> well, you don't want to forget it. So you just have to like keep repeating it. There's so many new ones to learn. I can't lose the one I had before I got here.
1: So I do kind of want to start out talking about what's actually going on in the labor market and the economy right now. You know, the past year has been unprecedented, not to use a word that's used all of the time, but it is certainly true. And at least for me, it feels like every time I think that I know what's going to happen, I hear about like the lumber shortage and I'm completely shocked. So I don't want to get too into specific numbers, but how is the economy doing?
2: What's going on? A great question that truly I'm spending every day trying to figure out. You know, I think if I had to describe the economy in in one sentence, I would say that we are headed in the right direction with a long way to go towards an inclusive recovery. You know, and I I think that's true. I think over the past you know several months, we've been averaging half a million new jobs. These are all good numbers. You know, no one thought or maybe no one should have thought that a once in a generation pandemic that sparked a recession that has lasted for 14 months would be solved in a couple of months. The recession was swift. It was quick. It was deep. And so it is going to take time to build back to where we were and to use the president's slogan to even build back a little bit better. It's going to take time. I think now is really the time to just keep our foot on the gas as we you know, try to dig out of this very big hole.
1: Where are we in the recovery right now?
2: Yeah, we are on our way, um, <laughs> which is, you know, maybe that's the shining optimism. Uh, people want from a certain uh, economic standpoint. But we are adding new jobs. We're getting the pandemic under control. We're seeing folks vaccinated. You know, something I've been really paying attention to is what are the reasons folks are not yet going back to work? You know, we are still in a pandemic. I love to see the numbers going down in terms of infections and, of course, death. And it's great to see more people getting vaccinated. But we do still have a pandemic. There is still a concern about health. One of the things that we've been thinking a lot about is also... So, you know, the barriers to childcare. it is very hard to tell folks that you have to go back to work when you still have to take care of your children or even an elderly parent. So I think the focus on those barriers that are keeping people from going back to work really do matter.
1: Yeah, I think especially, correct me if I'm wrong here, but going into the summer when kids are going to be out of school. And so if they've been in school at all, so this isn't a short fix.
2: Right. And I think that it's been a long year for sure. You know, it's definitely been been harder for low income folks, for black and brown women. But we're we're on our way. Who do you think we
1: should be most worried about right now and maybe over the next few months in terms of who we really need to think about not participating in whatever this recovery might eventually look like?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I'm mostly thinking about a couple of different populations. So one is thinking about workers of color. You know, a lesson I think we've learned after the Great Recession is that when we do take our foot off the gas too soon, when we, you know, declare economic recovery while communities of colors are still in economic crisis, just takes longer for those folks to recover. And so I want to make sure we don't go back to a point where the black unemployment rate is twice the average rate, right? Like, I don't think that's success. I don't think that's recovery. Mm -hmm. So focusing on workers of color is one. I think the second group that we really want to pay attention to right now are folks who have been long-term unemployed. And this is a group of folks who are unemployed and have been so for at least six months. And right now, that's about two in five unemployed workers. And that is just staggering. That is millions of people who have been out of work for at least half a year. And so we know that the effects of long-term unemployment are vast. It has impacts on your ability to earn income afterwards your ability to get jobs because employers often look unfavorably on gaps in your resume. We know there's impacts on, you know, mental and physical health. And so we really want to make sure that we are bringing these folks back into the labor market, attaching them to employment before we decide That we have recovered, Um, and we know that folks who have been long-term unemployed are often among the last to experience the benefits of a tight labor market. So I think that's the second. And the third group, which you know, I think we are still really paying attention to, is what's happening with women employment. Mm. This recession has really disproportionately impacted women. We've seen four million women leave the labor force, two million have not returned, half a million Black women left the labor market. We have to do something about women's employment before we are saying that we are actually reaching recovery. And we've seen some gains. We've seen some women coming back. The strength we've seen in leisure and hospitality disproportionately impacts women because they are disproportionately represented in those sectors. Mm -hmm. But we cannot have a recovery unless we bring those women back who have left the labor market, in part because of a lack of of childcare access. And that's pretty different
1: from the typical recession, right? Like usually we see... Men losing jobs. I mean, at least the last recession, right? It was the housing market, it was construction. How does this, what's happening right now, compare to what happened, what, like 10, 12 years ago?
2: Yeah, no, you're right. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that this recession has been so different in terms of men and women's employment is for the reason that you name. Due to occupational segregation, women are more concentrated in service occupations. And what we saw from this recession is those industries were just decimated, which means we've seen a disproportionate impact on women's employment. And that's different from the Great Recession, for sure, where we saw most uh, industries that disproportionately employ men take a hit. And so that's one of the ways this has been different. Another way this has been different is very much tied to the pandemic. Maybe in the spring of last year, early in the, in the recession, we were having these conversations about like, do we care about the health of the worker or do we care about the economy getting back to where it was? And we've now passed that, thank God. But the idea that, that we don't need a healthy worker to have a healthy economy is fundamentally wrong. And I think people, you know, not just me, tons of people were shouting that uh, in the summer last year. And so unlike a regular recession where we want, you know, we want increased demand, we want people to go back to stores, we really had to just suppress demand uh, and tell people to stay home until we could figure out how to get the virus under control. So I think that's another way that this recession has been, you know, very different from definitely the Great Recession. So I wanted to dig into something that you've kind of
1: hinted at a little bit earlier, which is that it feels like we're kind of in a hurry to declare things over, right? And we have to remember who's going to be left behind, whether that be black and brown workers or people who are long-term unemployed or women. Why do you think we are in such a hurry to declare this done, to say, you know what, we fixed the economy, everything's back to normal, everybody have a good
2: time. Why are we always
1: in such a hurry here?
2: I mean, people love a good time. I can't wait to have a good time again. It's been hard. You know, as someone who has had steady employment this whole time, whose wages have not taken a hit, who has had health insurance this whole time, it's been hard for me. And I am not the population that was most severely hit by the past year. And so I think it's hard to tell people who have been inside, who have suffered a a national trauma together in the terms of of the lives lost, the jobs lost, to say, you know, just keep doing it. Just hang on. I I think that's really hard. People are excited. I mean, I don't want to blame it all on just like the weather, but I'm looking outside. It looks very nice. People want to be outside, you know, having fun with their family, with their friends. It's hard to tell people after the year that we've had that we just have hang on a little bit longer. I think it's just hard for folks who have been inside for a year. But, you know, I think that we can do it. I think that we are headed in the right direction, but we're not quite there yet. So
1: I'm sure that you've seen this debate about the quote unquote labor shortage, right? Whether workers want to go back to work or not. Um, We saw in the April jobs report, like it or not, there weren't as many jobs added maybe as we thought. And that has kicked up this huge debate, right, where you have the Chamber of Commerce coming out and saying we need to end extended unemployment insurance immediately because that's keeping out of people out of the labor force. On the other hand, you have people saying, you know, we don't have childcare, or honestly, these are not good jobs. Who wants to go back to a job that pays you two, three dollars an hour if you're in the service industry during a pandemic? Like who wants that job? And so I guess I'm curious, like what you make of this debate, that companies are saying, you know, I can't find workers. We're seeing these stories everywhere. What do you think is really going on, I guess, to the extent that we really know?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I've seen the screaming. I've seen the hair pulling. There's a few things going on. One is the data, to the end of your question. I love when folks say that we are in a time that's unprecedented. We've never seen anything like it, but also we have to predict it and we have to know what's going on right now. Like, we are in an unprecedented time. It makes sense that, you know, we are figuring out the data. We're doing the best we can for sure. Our economist Heidi Sherholtz, who's at Economic Policy Institute, who also used to have this job, has really done a lot of deep dives into what's happening right now. And while we've seen some signs of limited labor shortage in the leisure and hospitality sector, there's no reason to think that that is permanent and there's no reason to think that it will spread to other sectors. There's very little reason to worry about a widespread shortage, to worry about the economy overheating. As we get more data to the point we were just making, there has been pent up demand for over a year. So it makes sense to have some demand that has been pent up to have, you know, more workers going back. But we've also seen very strong job growth in leisure and hospitality, hundreds of thousands of jobs a month in this sector where folks say it's impossible to find workers. The other thing that I would say to that is when someone says, I can't find a worker. I want to ask, much like our friend Heidi Sherholtz, at what wage? You know, if you're asking me, why doesn't a worker who does not have childcare, who would make 213 in a job with lots of face-to-face contact during a pandemic, like why that worker is turning down that opportunity? I think there's some good reasons there. I think that makes some sense. And so the question about at what wage, with what protections, with Mm -hmm. what benefits, I think really, really does matter as we think about this. But again, I think, you know, we really haven't seen any signs in the in the data and the evidence that this is widespread. You know, this is also not the first time we've heard from businesses say that they can't find workers. You know, we have a lot of experience of debunking the skills gap, which occurred in, in 2008 and 2009. Remind me what that is again. So this is the idea that employers want to hire workers, but the workers just don't have the skills that they need for the jobs that are open. Mm. And so this was a huge conversation 10 years ago. And what happened? We got unemployment down to three and a half percent without a national overhaul of our worker education and training. The workers were there. And so, you know, I think that the idea that businesses can't find workers is something that they will say all the time. And I think we really really have to make sure that the evidence is there, that the data is saying this, that it is widespread before we decide to stop helping workers and before we decide to stop giving workers a choice about whether or not to go back to a low wage job in a pandemic or have the security and stability to stay home and take care of their families.
1: Right. And I do think that this gets at something around, you know, American work culture here, A lot of our economy assumes that there's going to be an endless pool of low wage workers who ask for nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. And and maybe now all of a sudden, you know, people have had a year to kind of rethink things and think like, wait a minute, why am I not spending time with my child or why am I not going back to school? And it does feel a little bit like maybe a rethinking of things.
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, people walk with me up to the point of agreeing that some things in the economy were working before. This is a once in a generation opportunity to think about things differently. But then when we talk about like bold solutions in a different way the economy works, it's like, oh wait, hold on, not that, not that actually. And it's been a year. I would hate to think that we come out of this pandemic and out of this recession and we just have the labor market of early 2020. I think we have to... Be bold about, you know, what are the things that made us structurally fall? Like why was the recession so deep? Why was it so painful for so many families? And we can provide relief and recovery that makes people whole right now, but we can also restore people to where they were, you know, not just a year ago, not just four years ago, but a generation ago. And I think now is really the time to do that as we face, to your point, an unprecedented time.
1: Well, and especially when you see how some of the government measures have really made a difference in people's lives. Like, you talked to me a year ago. I remember sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn. I'm hearing the sirens go by, the ambulances all the time. I'm just <laughs> thinking, like, the world is ending. We are entering the Great Depression if I survive. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen. <laughs> Thank God. Right. But, you know, I think we have really seen sort of a response, you know, from the prior administration and this one that, I mean, it changed the course of at least where I last year thought maybe we were really headed
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I remember that call. And you're right. It was just nonstop sirens. It was the end times. I feel like going into the winter was like especially dark time. Like maybe the sun always sets at 430 in the fall, but this time it felt really, really dark. Mm -hmm. And you're right. We could have made a different set of choices that left people worse off. I think I can say that we probably should have done even a little bit more than we did. But We decided that we don't want to leave millions of families and communities of workers in economic devastation. We don't have to do that. We can make a different set of choices. And so we did that. And I'm just proud of the work that we've done so far. I'm just really excited about the American Rescue Plan that we've passed already and what that will do, you know, not just to help the hurt right now, but also to think about, you know, the ways that we restructure the economy going forward. Let's
1: take a quick break, but when we're back, I want to hear more from Janelle about her. Now that she's found herself in this amazing role at the DOL, what does she want to do? That, and the moment when Janelle and I bond over the fact that the economy is not boring. After the break...
0: Get ready to Laugh Out Loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Hear Judd Apatow talk about his experience making iconic films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. Watch Hacks actress Hannah Einbinder's stand-up special. Experience films that make you laugh out loud with fan-favorite comedians, like Group Therapy, where Neil Patrick Harris, Nicole Byer, Tig Notaro, and more hilariously detail their experiences with mental health. Outstanding, a comedy revolution, a film investigating the impact of queer comedians with Lily Tomlin, Rosie O'Donnell, and Bob the Drag Queen, and Sacramento, a lighthearted narrative comedy with Michael Sarah and Kristen Stewart, and much, much more. Get your tickets now at Tribecafilm.com.
1: So I now kind of want to talk a little bit about you because I knew you a little bit before this. I don't know if you actually Mm -hmm. know, but I heard a rumor that you were getting a job at the Department of Labor before you got the job, but I didn't know which one it was.
2: But I couldn't (laughs) break it. That's very cool. I did. I mean, you definitely
1: heard it earlier than me, for sure. I don't know how much earlier I heard it, but it was a very exciting. (laughs) Like, I have a scoop. I can't tell anyone, but yay. So, (laughs) So I think one thing that you have really kind of carved a space in and are known for is that you coined this framing Black women best. And could you just talk about
2: what that is and why you think that matters? Yeah. So the work that I've been doing, you know, before I had this job and, you know, I'm really excited that the work I'm doing now is still very much tied to this idea of Of centering the most marginalized as we think about policy, as we think about recovery, and as we think about the economy in general. And so Black Woman Best is a framework that really just reorients our economic worldview. It says that if we can shift who we center in economic policy and economic analysis, we can create an economy that works better for everyone. And so it really does mean just being very explicit about who we're thinking about, what data we're measuring, who we're centering, and how that can make sure that we're not leaving folks behind. You know, I think some of the lessons that we have all learned is that, you know, it is very hard to have a policy that's very good and then say, oh, but we will consider race and gender later. Mm-hmm. It is very hard to make sure that those populations are actually not left behind or suffer dire and terrible consequences. And so this really gives us an idea and a framework and a narrative that says, you know, we start by centering a population that usually is left behind. And what does it mean for them to be doing well? Right. So, you know, if we take the unemployment rate, what does it mean if we don't consider full employment for the economy until we have full employment for Black women. Mm -hmm. That is a different way of thinking about what an economic recovery looks like. And so I think that's, you know, a helpful kind of narrative device that I've been using in my work that I think is really important as we think about going forward and making sure that we really don't declare success and recovery before everyone else has been able to have those economic benefits.
1: Right. Because I do think even just you mentioned this, but looking at unemployment. Right. If you look at the top line, it's one thing, but in what world would we accept overall unemployment or frankly white unemployment as a society at 9%? But for some reason, for Black workers, we don't talk about it.
2: Right. I mean, if the average unemployment rate was 9%, we would still be running around like our hair was on fire. But the thing is like, It is that for Black workers. That is the economic reality that they're facing. Some work I've done with Jared Bernstein in the summer showed that, you know, based on the Federal Reserve's own definition of full employment, we've actually never had full employment for Black workers. And so what does that mean? I mean, what are the choices that we're making? Who are we in policy leaving behind on purpose explicitly? And so I think to make sure that we really don't do that, that we are thinking about an inclusive, robust economic recovery during this time where, you know, we can agree that it's unprecedented during this time that the scale of the problem ahead of us is huge. Let's also think about the scale of the solution and maybe doing things a little bit differently.
1: I didn't realize that about Black full employment. Like, it,
2: Isn't it shocking?
1: Right. And it makes sense. But like, obviously, and like, wait, I didn't know that at all. That's wild.
2: It is wild. It definitely is wild. And I think you're not the first person I've said that to when they thought, wait, is that true? It is true. Like, this is how we're walking around. We're walking around saying that the Federal Reserve has a mandate of full employment and price controls but it's actually never fulfilled the mandate for Black workers. Wow. That's a choice. We don't have to make it. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So, how do you think, as a black woman, you are kind of bringing your own experience to the table at the Department of Labor and just in the economic conversation? because I imagine this is these sorts of things happen a lot where like right? White <laughs> economists don't think about these things,
2: yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, luckily, I've had a lot of practice. I've been a black woman my whole life, so it's something you know, I've really been training for. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the space and economics, I think, Nothing good has happened in, in the past year and a half. I don't want to say, like, I'm glad the pandemic happened. I'm not. The loss of life, the economic devastation has been terrible. Something that has happened alongside of that is that we've had a conversation about race and economics. You know, we saw the president of the Atlanta Federal Reserve pen an essay about the moral imperative for economists to think about race. That is huge. We saw a hearing where Federal Reserve Chairman Powell took questions and answered carefully about the way the Federal Reserve should be thinking about race. We've had William Spriggs and Dr. Sandy Darity and Derek Hamilton. You know, we've had tons of folks across the discipline really talking about the way we have to center race and the policymaking and in the economics profession. So I think that that's been great. Again, like, these folks have been screaming about it for longer than I've been alive, but I'm glad that we're taking this moment to now listen. And I think for me in the work that I'm doing at the Department of Labor and you know how my identity is showing up is one, I'm not far removed from the realities we are talking about when we say, what does it mean for a worker to make 213? What does it mean to give someone childcare? What does it mean to be in a union? These are all of the things that you know, my family interacts with, these are the things that drew me into economics as a framework and a set of tools to make people's lives better. And so when we think about, you know, centering equity, how this policy will work, I was home in Ohio recently, and I was talking to, you know, a cousin who's a home health aide. And she has telling me, you know, she has been working for the past 14 months. She has not gotten an increase in wages, although her job has become much more dangerous. I'm often just like talking to her about worker power and and the need to have a voice on the job. And she's, she's in a world where that's not really her experience. And, you know, the work that I'm doing at the Department of Labor is really bringing that lived experience into the policies that we're doing, because they're not removed from folks. You know, I think a lot of the conversation around economics is sometimes kind of like over here for very important people and like, you know, removed and the language is difficult to access. And so few people feel like it's above them and it's separate from them, but it's not, right? Like, We are all experiencing the economy around us. It impacts us always. And so the way that I bring that experience into everything is, you know, I'm really thinking about the black women who have raised me and taught me and and who care about me and whose lives I want to make better using the tools of economics. I really don't think of economics and economic policy as, you know, an abstract intellectual exercise where smart people sit around and be smart, although that's fun. Who doesn't like to feel smart? Mm -hmm. But I think it's a set of tools to make people's lives better. I think it's a set of tools and policy choices that we can make that make people more secure, that make them better off, that make them healthier. And also, you know, surprise, make the economy stronger.
1: Right. Yeah, I feel like sometimes even I tell people I write about economics and they're like, Wait, what? And it's like, No, I know, but listen. Like it's actually interesting and I promise this is also very important. And it is difficult to make people kind of care, but it's like, no but you care about your job, right? Like you know right. even though it feels, you know, boring. But it's really like, no, it's kind of the most important thing.
2: It's so important. I mean, I talk about my mom all the time in interviews and her response is always, how am I coming up in your very important conversations that you're very important job about the economy? And I'm just like, it's you. You're the economy. This is how it comes up. But yeah, I am slowly trying to just like draw my family into caring more about like the nerdy parts of economic policy. You know, it's a long hill to climb, but I'm trying.
1: Actually, that was the next question I wanted to ask you was about your mom.
2: Oh, she's going
1: to love that. I read, I think, that she worked for a long time at McDonald's and at Dairy Queen and then got a union job, right? Mm -hmm. I'm curious, kind of watching her work, how that influenced you.
2: Yeah, I think that was really, you know, before I had the tools and language of like, what is economic policy? I think that was my first experience of the way it impacts folks beyond wages. You know, so I remember, you know, being young and when my mom worked at McDonald's, it was, you know, a pretty constant occurrence that she would get called into work without any notice and would wake me up in my pajamas and then like drop me off at my aunt's house or my grandma's house and say like, take Janelle to school. I've got to go to work. I'll pick her up later. It was also a constant occurrence that, you know, she did not know when she was going to work. So she couldn't like, plan to come see me play the clarinet. I mean, I was very bad at the clarinet, but she would have come if she could have planned for it. Mm-hmm. It was hard to think about trying to like get out of town for a weekend because she didn't know if she was going to have to work. And so that experience of seeing, you know, just seeing how stressed she was about the job because of the lack of benefits, the lack of predictable schedules, and also the low wages, you know, that is something I remember is just like being fundamentally changed once she got a union job when I was in middle school. One of the first things she did was she had really good health insurance. So we started like going to the dentist all the time, which is, you know, not something you like... Think of immediately, but that's important. and that happened. You know, I remember we we were able to go to vacation. She came and watched me play soccer. I was not very good at soccer, but she could come because she knew when she would get off of work. And so it really it changed not just the wages that she was making, but the way that she was able to you know, show up for me and the rest of our family because she was secure and stable in her job and became a little bit more involved in what is a union? What does it mean to have worker voice? What does it mean to have vacation that you can plan for? And I think all of that, really influenced the way that I think about how the economy is definitely wages, but it's also more than that. It really does impact all of the things around us. And so, you know, thinking broadly about economic policy, I really think about how it impacts all aspects of of who workers are.
1: Why did you decide to go into economics? Like, what was your path there?
2: That's a Good question. So I was a math major at Spelman College when I was in high school. Uh, I'm from Northeast Ohio. So we have a NASA center that's close to us. And when I was in high school, I worked there in the summers and I found out that there was a program where NASA would pay for me to go to Spelman, which is you know where I wanted to go from the beginning of time. And so I thought, cool. And they said, well, you have to be a physical science major. So you have to be a STEM major. And so I actually chose math because it was the only major that was allowed without the labs. Like computer science had a lab, chemistry had a lab, physics had a lab. And I thought, oh, I'll choose math because there's no lab, which means it won't be as hard. That is actually not true. Math is very hard. And there's no lab because you spend all of your nights trying to figure out proofs. And so I was a math major in Spellman and I Spellman is a liberal arts school so you had to take some liberal arts classes and I I remember taking an economics class and thinking oh, I like this. This is very cool. This feels like a way where I can, you know, keep the rigorous mathematical analytical training I'm getting in my home department, but apply it to something where like my family is a little bit more interested. So while they definitely did not want to hear about real analysis, I could sometimes tell them like, "Ooh, I'm studying money. Do you want to hear how my classes are going? And so I think it was something where... I really thought I could really use the training that I was getting, but also apply it to something that maybe would would lead to me being able to do something that would make people's lives better off. And I had a, an incredible professor in undergrad, uh, Professor Jack Stone, who was still there at Spelman. And he told me, you have to study economics. You just you can't study math. You have to do it. And I've been on the the path ever since. You know, economics is a field that has quite the reputation, I'll say. But I have the best, most supportive, most encouraging, most amazing professional network. Of economists around me. And so just really am glad that I ended up in the field uh, where I am doing this work.
1: So obviously, you've been in economics for a long time. I am not an expert in economics, but I think about this stuff a lot. And and I kind of hinted at this before, but like I really have felt in the past couple of weeks and certainly in the past year. I just am looking into a black box when it comes to what's going to happen. I just wrote a story about the lumber shortage. And, -hmm. and like, who would have thought, right, that at this outset of a deadly pandemic, everybody was going to decide to build new homes and renovate theirs. And it kind of makes sense and it doesn't, right? But I do feel like, again, like, it's like I'm staring into the abyss. And I am kind of curious, like, has the past year changed the way that you – Think about the economy, is there something that you really thought before that you now think maybe you were wrong about?
2: Me? Wrong? No. <laughs> I've been right about the economy since I got here. I'm always I'm always just like saying the right thing ahead of time. No. You know, I one of the things that I think has probably changed my thinking about the economy is just how into progressive economic policies people are. Just the scale of things that we can do if we just set our minds to making people's lives better. So I think if you had told me, you know, two years ago that we were going to send out $1,400 checks to millions of people and like, it'd be cool. Like we would just do it and it'd be fine. I would have thought, What are you talking about in these United States of America? That's one thing that's really changed my mind is just thinking about the increased audience that we have for the ways that we can make the economy more progressive and more fair and better for workers. You know, I think that maybe before this, you know, I often felt like I was talking to people who Definitely already agreed with all of my priors and we were coming to the exact same solutions all of the time. But you know, I think, I think we've had a conversation over the past 14 months with folks who two years ago wouldn't have thought it's a good idea to give everyone $1,400 checks and now thinks, yeah, let's do it. You know, tons of groups have been doing this work for a long time, but thinking of care as infrastructure, I think the past year has shown all of us, we have to invest in the care economy for the rest of the economy to work. And so I think that's something that's really, you know, changed how I've thought about the economy in the past year. And I've all, I also think that there's more opportunity. I really think that there's just like such an appetite and a desire and a chance to make some fundamental change, right? To not just go back to where we were, but to really do something that looks different, that feels different, that's better for workers, that centers equity. I mean, this is more optimistic than I usually am, but I really think that that's the thing that's changed in the past year. On the technical side, you know, I hope the things that come out of this are really just our need to focus more on data, right? Like I think we absolutely can't solve a problem that we haven't measured correctly. And so thinking about, you know, how do we get really good, timely data on what's happening with workers in the moment, I think is something else that's changed how I think about the economy. You know, to your point, we get the jobs numbers every month. And on the one hand, it always feels like jobs day. But on the other hand, it's not. And there are weeks in between. And, you know, when things are moving on a week by week basis in terms of employment, in terms of vaccine rollout, These up-to-date data on what's happening, I think, really, really matters. And so I think that's also kind of changed the way I've thought about like how we measure what's going on. I think maybe before I would have thought we have a really good handle on all the data we need. And now I just I feel like we've really highlighted the things that are missing, particularly in terms of underserved populations.
1: Right. Do we even have the data mechanisms right now to understand what's going on? Like I was talking to someone just before we got on the phone and he was like, you know, the once a month jobs report and the once a month CPI
2: inflation. We don't really know. Right. It's going to be bouncy. Right. It is going to be bouncy. We're coming out of, a again, an unprecedented time. It's going to take a long time for the data to level out, to become normalized, as you would say. And so we're missing a lot of that. But also, you know, so much of the data that we have is at the national level. And, you know, the past year has shown us maybe more than ever that that is not always representative of what's happening with everyone. You know, as we think about an inclusive recovery, you know, it is really hard for us to get employment data on indigenous populations. Mm. It is really hard for us to get accurate data on rural populations. So I think there's definitely a data need and a data gap that we'll we'll have to fill as we thinking about making sure that, you know, the policies we're putting in place, the levers that we're pulling really are reaching everyone. Like, we just won't know if we don't have the data to measure it.
1: So, I don't want to raid on your parade of optimism <laughs> from earlier. But it does feel to me like in my mind, I would like to think, like, yes, we now have seen how these progressive policies work, whether it be childcare or sending people checks or expanded unemployment. But we do see these old conversations. A, did not go away and certainly starting to creep back in, whether it be Mm -hmm. people don't want to work or when we're talking about, you know, the child tax credit or supporting families. We get into this conversation of who deserves the social safety net and who doesn't. You know, what about mothers who maybe don't want to work? And I guess, like, does that sort of dampen your optimism? Because these are things that aren't going to go away. The Chamber of Commerce is not going away.
2: Are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I will accept the rain on the parade. That was my optimism. That's fine. It's fine. No, I think to your point, these are the conversations that we always have, you know, the conversation that employers can't find the workers that we need, the conversation that we have to be, you know, really scared of inflation These are the conversations we always have, in part because, you know, the way the economy is set up now and the way it was set up before is we do have a set of winners and losers. Usually the people winning are the wealthy and corporations. And so, you know, of course, if we come in after months and say, you know, we want to give workers more power, we want to give workers more voice, want to give workers more stability and security. There's going to be some people who don't really want that because they've been winning for a generation. You know, I think that means that we're doing things right. I think These conversations are ones that are also not unexpected, you know, in terms of the inflation outcry. We knew that would happen, right? Like we knew if your base year was April of 2020, inflation was going to be high. I remember April of 2020. It was a wild time. We knew that was going to happen. And, you know, I think that the policies and plans put forth by by this administration, you know, some of the things we want to do, it's filled with veterans who have been kind of batting down these arguments for a long time. This will not be the first time that we've heard things like this. And, you know, we also didn't solve it all, right? Like, one of the fundamental flaws of our economy is the way that structural racism shows up in all parts of it. We haven't solved that. People who say that, like, we still have work to do on that are right. So I I am optimistic, but I do think that some of these arguments that we've heard before are one, ones that we can expect because they're the ones that people have been making for a generation, whether or not they are true. And I think they're also ones that we can combat, right? Like, I think we are making a different set of policy choices that makes a different set of people better off. And I think the evidence will show that that's better for the economy and that's better for workers. And, um, you know, I'm willing to bet that we're making the right choices.
1: Yeah. And it certainly does feel like, after a year of talking about essential workers and clapping at 7 p.m. every day that Mm -hmm. it's both easy and hard to imagine a world where we will kind of forget that, right? And how quickly the conversation turns back to workers are asking for too much money when it's like, well, a year ago, the guy at Walgreens was a hero, you know, and now he's greedy. Right.
2: Well, I think the the ease with which people will want to go back to the old conversation, you know, I think That's a real concern. That's really something people are going to want to go back to because they would have said, well, it's better than what we just went through. And I think we have to keep our eye on the ball that our baseline is not what we just went through. And it's not what happened over the last four years. It's what's happened over a generation of workers being, you know, collective bargaining being attacked, the workplace being fissured, wages being stagnant. Like, that's what we're trying to combat, not just that we want things to be better than they were in the summer. And so I really think it's going to take some determination on our part to make sure that we keep our eye on the ball in terms of like where we want to go and what we're comparing it to. But yeah, I mean, there's always going to be the case to be made that things should just go back to where they were at the beginning of 2020, because some folks were doing fine. Some people were, were doing great at the beginning of 2020. And even over the past year, to your point, not everyone has taken a hit, right? Not everyone's life has become considerably, considerably worse. Not everyone has, you know, been completely out of work for almost a year. And so, yeah. I think I was looking actually the other day at
1: a Pew study about high income people saying they think like four in 10 had said that they were actually financially like better off in the pandemic. But it makes sense. You know, you're not going out to eat, you're not going to a restaurant, you're, you're in the stock market, but it is really just like, I know like the K-shaped economy is kind of tired, but it's truly like what we've seen happen.
2: No, it it definitely is. Definitely my life has not changed for the worst of the past year, other than, you know, not being able to go outside, which is fine. But for low-wage workers, for middle and income workers, it has not been the case, right? For folks who are in, you know, essential work work that was just more dangerous over the past year, it has not been the case. For works who have been in, in industries that have been shut down, you know, thinking about again about leisure and hospitality, thinking about childcare, you know, most of the childcare providers are also women, you know, thinking about schools. It has been a harrowing year of economic hardship. And so I don't want to just return those workers to where they were early this year. I want to make sure that that they're stable and secure in case we do have another pandemic, that this is not the outcome.
1: So you are sort of in a place right now where you can try and help shape policy. What are some of the things that you're thinking about in terms of real policy fixes here? And maybe, I guess,
2: where should we even start? (sighs) What a great question. Where to start? I mean, the scale of the problem is really small. So there's just like one or two things, (laughs) Emily. Um, No, it's a big problem. I mean, you know, I think a place to start is like immediate relief and recovery, right? Like, I think the lesson we've learned is we will not get back to even where we were a year ago, if we do not have the pandemic under control it is just impossible. So I think that's a place to start. I think the place to start is really thinking about how we get the virus under control. And then I think the next step is, you know, addressing some of those structural flaws in the economy by, you know, taxing corporations, by investing in the care economy, by centering equity. Something that that hasn't really come up is also, you know, we are facing a, a climate crisis of actual epic proportions. Um, so tackling that, And I think the way that, you know, we start and we keep going and we finish is by making sure that we are measuring success based on what is happening with workers and particularly workers of color.
1: Where is the Department of Labor right now in terms of data, right? Because isn't there an executive order or something saying that, like, you guys kind of need to figure out what's actually going on?
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that is mostly it. TLDR is we need to figure out what's going on. There's lots of things that I'm like truly, truly excited about in this position. But one of them is, you know, the president's very first executive order was on racial equity and underserved populations. I've talked to a few people about this and the mandate, the scope of this executive order is so broad. Like there really has been nothing like this. It's a mandate for every federal agency to think about all of the work that you were doing and how it impacts underserved populations. A big part of that is also thinking about the data that we have, that we need, that we want to have to be able to, um, you know, more equitably distribute our programs and policies and benefits. And so that is something that we are thinking about. That's something we're putting a lot of time and energy to. The number of times I've talked to BLS since I've started is probably more than they would want to an annoying degree. But I think we've got a real opportunity. You know, I think the excitement with which folks took in the Household Pulse Survey over the past several months, like that was just such useful data to tell us what is happening right now with households and with businesses. And I think something like that is really important in going forward because we will have expectations of 7 million jobs added one month and instead it will be 1 million. Um you know, we will see an unexpected increase in used cars because everyone's renting cars now. Thinking about, you know, the things that we know are coming in terms of, you know, putting a little bit more pressure on the economy, trying to keep people safe um, at work, trying to make sure that we continue to give support, but also, you know, being ready for the things that might surprise us really will take an investment in our data infrastructure. And luckily, this is not the only executive order that mentions the need for data. So it is something that we are definitely thinking about seriously here at the Department of Labor and working, you know, incredibly close with our colleagues at the Bureau of Economic Analysis and the Department of Commerce about how to make sure that we do have a set of tools in place that gives us, you know, the best quality, up-to-date data to inform the policy that we want going forward.
1: And so you basically have to go to, like, the BLS and be like, hey, will you guys send me some extra data? So. <laughs>
2: I try to. I mean, the thing about BLS is they are on purpose and rightfully so, mm-hmm. like very independent. But who doesn't love BLS data? But I, I spend a lot of time, you know, asking about unpublished tables that I can possibly look at. But on the other side of that, the agencies within the Department of Labor collect a ton of really good data. You know, I think we've noticed that there's definitely some areas where we need to do a little bit better. But thinking about the enforcement, the benefit programs that we run, you know, there's a ton of data there. But yeah, there's there's never going to be enough. And given the scale of the problem, where we're going and what we want to do, we really, you know, we can always keep getting better.
1: A lot of discussion around the economy kind of throughout the pandemic has been that the risk is always doing too little, and not too much, to really help people to save the economy. Do you think we're doing enough?
2: Oh, my God. Emily, my last words will be, no one considers the counterfactual. No one considers the counterfactual. Truly, you know, the decisions about fiscal support to help millions of people get through a recession and a pandemic don't happen in a vacuum. We've seen the past 14 months and what people are facing. We have to meet the scale of the problem. It's not just that, you know, we do this or nothing happens. You know, if we had not done this. Think about what would have happened. You know, to earlier in our conversation, we were, we were talking a year ago. I mean, it was end times. It was the end times. Like it felt like they were actually upon us. And so, no, I don't think that we've done too much. Josh Bivens at Economic Policy Institute wrote a really fantastic piece last year about the risk of doing too little versus the risk of doing too much. If you ask me to choose between a sluggish recovery that leaves workers with no more power and like hardly ever comes for workers of color versus inflation that is slightly above 2% and fewer workers making the choice between working in a pandemic and taking care of their families... I know where I stand. I feel pretty confident in that choice. We have Secretary Yellen at Treasury and Jerome Pyle at the Federal Reserve. And I just feel extremely confident in our ability to identify and use monetary policy tools to combat inflation and any signs of potential overheating. I think what's harder to solve and takes big, bold action by this administration and by Congress is the millions of workers who are unemployed and the millions more who are employed in jobs with low wages and no benefits. That's a problem that requires going big. I think that's a problem where, you know, we can risk maybe doing a little too much, even though I don't think we have right now. We're still, you know, more than 8 million jobs below where we were at the beginning of last year. Black unemployment is almost double digits. I think we've got a long way to go. Yeah. I mean, I guess like
1: yeah, this is kind of the big question is how do we get back to better than January twenty twenty and maybe just not repeat the mistakes of the Great Recession.
2: Not if I can help it. And like maybe I can't, but not if I can help it. I don't think we should. And you know, I actually feel pretty confident that the folks in charge also don't want to do it because they were also here, right? Like when I look at the Council of Economic Advisors, CC Rouse, Jared Bernstein and Heather Boucher are folks who have been very vocal and very public about the things we did wrong after the Great Recession and why we should not make those mistakes again. So, you know, I think we have to stay focused on what's ahead of us and on what we want to do because we know what happens if we don't. After the Great Recession, you know, there were just like headline after headline about how it was the longest economic expansion in the history of the country. Everything was going great but Black female employment did not return to previous levels until 2018. Black unemployment was twice average unemployment. And so that wasn't the best economic years for Black workers. Like, that's not the case for everyone. And I think we want to make sure that that doesn't happen again. The biggest mistake from the Great Recession was really doing too little and cutting off support too soon. And I think we are all really committed to not making that mistake again.
1: I mean, it is just wild to think the top line numbers or the top headline even that just really kind of hides everything.
2: It hides all of the important things. I just, I absolutely don't see myself reflected in that, my parents reflected in that, my folks in Ohio who are reflected in that. It just doesn't tell a complete story. And I know that it's easy and I know that it's simple because it's just one number, but we have just got to find the mental space to do nuance over the next year. We have to be able to keep two things in our head at the same time. We have to say, we are making things better. We are on the right path. We are headed in the right direction. And also, we have work to do. We are still not done. Low-income Black and brown women are still suffering. Folks who work in childcare are still not completely back to work. Folks who work in essential jobs, those jobs are still essential. There actually is still a pandemic. We can't leave those folks behind as the weather gets warmer and unemployment rate for everyone decreases. We really, really have to be able to keep those two things in our heads at the same time over the next several months. Yeah, like I think a
1: lot about Earlier this year, I was talking to someone who worked for Dollar Tree, um, making seven twenty five an hour, mm-hmm. and I had to call him on his Kindle because his phone didn't work. And during our conversation, he started to talk about how he was nervous about the minimum wage going up because, like, what if inflation? And it's like, wow, they're just like he hears that conversation at the same time, maybe doesn't see in his own life, like Mm -hmm. Dollar Tree is doing gangbusters business and is opening a bunch of new outlets and they're giving you seven dollars an hour so (laughs) that you can't even buy a phone.
2: Right, exactly. Like, that's not the biggest thing you should be worried about right now. You know, I think that um the conversations I have with my family about the economy are just like some of the most fascinating I have, truly. They'll see a proposal to tax billionaires and they'll say, well, I don't know. We don't want taxes too high. And I'm like, you are not and never will be a billionaire. You are fine. Like, your taxes are not going up. But don't you also want like, Better schools and better roads and better healthcare and better air quality. It's like, oh yeah, I definitely do want those things. Never mind, it's fine. They should pay. And you know, I think that this really matters in the narrative that we tell ourselves about the economy. Because I think we will see some things starting to get better. I mean, we, you know, we've seen drops in the unemployment rate over the past couple of months that are you really exciting improvements. But that is not the lived experience of everyone. And I think it's really important to make sure that we are highlighting the folks who are still suffering an economic crisis and a health crisis before, you know, we we run off and say that we've solved it and pat ourselves on the back.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like a lot of the current stimulus, it, which is like the bill is good and stuff, but a lot of it sort of guesses at the end of the pandemic, when whether it's like rent relief or unemployment insurance. And like, I don't know where you stand on automatic stabilizers, but it is like we just kind of guessed at the end of the pandemic from right. the get go instead of saying, hey, let's tie unemployment insurance to something like the unemployment rate.
2: Right, but also the beginning, right? Like we were like, oh, is it going to spread past New York? Oh, wait, is it going to spread past the East Coast? Oh, wait, it's everywhere. We're going to be shut down forever. Let's get some fiscal stimulus out there. And instead, we could have, you know, tied it to something like the unemployment rate. You know, I think uh, in the vein of bold solutions, we can also thinking about tying it to the Black unemployment rate. We can think about, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're seeing shutdowns in particular sectors, we can think about tying it to the unemployment rate in healthcare or in education or in government or in leisure and hospitality, right? Like the pandemic really decimated certain service sectors. And so I think that's part of why, you know, we're saying, um, if leisure and hospitality keeps growing, then we're really on our way back because it took such a huge hit. So let's tie help to that sector, right? Like if we know we actually want to think about, you know, when people can go get a haircut and then go straight to a restaurant and then, you know, go straight to a hotel. You know, if those are the sectors that we want to measure success by, let's tie how we give help to how those sectors are doing. So I think there's there's just a lot of ways to think about automatic stabilizers um, beyond just tying it to, you know, the average unemployment rate. Mm -hmm, For sure.
1: Well, thank you so much for being here and for talking with me today. Thanks so much for having me. This was a really
2: good conversation. Yeah. This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by
0: Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of Audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode.